Southwestern Family of Companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Hello, listener. This is Zach Troutman, producer for the Action Catalyst podcast. And with the 2022 Olympic Games now officially underway, we wanted to dig through the archives and bring you some words of wisdom from a pair of Olympians that we've been fortunate enough to have as guests on the Action Catalyst. First up, Johnny Quinn, professional speaker and former professional football player with the Buffalo Bills and the Green Bay Packers. He tells the story of his unbelievable journey from the NFL to the United States Olympic bobsled team to competing in the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia, and getting trapped in a bathroom in the Olympic Village. You know, growing up in Texas, I played Texas high school football. So from a young age, I knew I wanted to play in the NFL one day. And uh, but but there was a problem with that because I'm only five eleven and seven eighths. I'm I'm not even six foot. The the scouts wouldn't even give me the six foot. And so I knew it at, at a young age that if I'm going to play in the NFL or, or go after my big dream. I'm going to have to start out working some people. And so I, I found one scholarship to the University of North Texas, uh, two days before signing day. You know, I, I just got in and I had a very fortunate college career. I left as the school's all time leading receiver. And so my college career went very well. And so when it was time to turn pro, uh, my family, we interviewed eight different agents and we found the agent that was right for, for my family. And I, I remember when the NFL draft came, I did not get drafted. And I, I was confused because I was always told if you produce, you get rewarded, right? I mean, if you, if you make all the plays, you get rewarded. And so I had a very successful college career, but Nobody wanted to draft me on draft day. And so shortly after the NFL draft, I had my first free agent contract come in from the Buffalo Bills. I'm 22 years old. I signed a three-year deal. And I remember getting to Buffalo, getting all of my NFL gear to, to see my name in an NFL locker room. It, it was unbelievable. We get out to practice. I'm day three with the Bills running routes and snap. My hamstring goes. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Day three into my childhood dream coming true, a a hamstring injury? And so, you know, the NFL, we, we joke around and say, hey, it stands for not for long. And boy, they had me on a flight back to Texas so quick. I was out of there. But that was the first time that somebody sat me down. They, they looked me in the eyes, crossed the table, and they said, Johnny, you're not good enough. We're not going to keep you around. We're not going to let you rehabilitate your hamstring. We do not think you can help us win. And when I heard those words, I I didn't know how to process that because I had a very successful high school career, very successful college career. I get to the pros and 
suddenly I'm not good enough. And so I, I came back to Texas. My agent found a, a new team the following year with the Green Bay Packers. And so I, I get to Green Bay when Brett Favre retired the first time. <laughs> and I'm 23 years old. I signed a $1.4 million contract. I'm, I'm excited to be in Green Bay. Things are going good. You know, finally, I'm back on track. I get selected as off-season performer of the week. We we get into the preseason. It was incredible. And then three weeks later, they cut me and send me home. And so this this emotional roller coaster that I'm on. I mean, I was I was on the top of my game. Monday Night Football, Lambeau Field, first NFL reception. Three weeks later, Johnny. You're not good enough. Today, we are cutting you. And so at this point, I, I, my agent says, Johnny, I, I can't find a team in the NFL. Do you want to play in the CFL, the Canadian Football League? I, mean, I didn't even know they played football in Canada at the, at the time. And he sends me north to the Canadian Football League. I'm with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, and I make the roster. I earn a starting spot on the team. You know, on this little detour, but it's only a matter of time until my agent gets me, you know, back in the NFL where we're back on track. And then one week later, I blow out my knee, torn ACL. I joke, you know, I'm on some random field in Canada, minus 29 degrees with a blown out knee, trying to figure out, you know, what is going on? You know, why is this so tough? This isn't the way. It's supposed to go. And so at this point, my agent uh, is telling me, Johnny, I can't find a team for you. Um, nobody wants to bring you in for a tryout. It looks like we're done here. And he goes, do you want to try bobsled? And, and I said, bobsled? Are, are you talking about Cool Runnings, the Jamaican bobsled team? I mean, that's he I, he represented a bobsledder back in the day. He goes, yeah, Johnny, they, they look for former football players with a track and field background. I, I also ran track in college. He said, yeah, I think you'd be a good fit. Really interesting start. I, I get in touch with a driver. They call them pilots, bobsled pilots, at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. And he goes, Johnny, why don't you come out here in a couple months? push a bobsled around, see if you like it. I said, all right, but if, if my agent finds a football team, I'm going football. I'm out of here. And true story, one month before I'm supposed to go try out bobsled, I get a phone call from this driver. He goes, Johnny, one of my guys has showed up overweight. Do you want to come up now and compete in the U.S. four-man team trials? I said, well, when's the race? He goes, it's in two days. I've never pushed a bobsled in my life. <laughs> and he goes, I remember like it was yesterday. He goes, well, all you have to do is get into the sled. <laughs> this guy's lost his mind. and, and uh, But I, I went, true story. It set in motion this new journey because I started this bobsled journey um, in 2010 after the uh, 2010 Winter Olympics. And so that gave me a great start, but it was a four-year journey until they named the Olympic team in 2014, 
where the games were held in Sochi, Russia. And so what happened after, you know, this, this unbelievable experience, you know, we're talking about God opening a door. You know, one thing I struggle with is pride. I'm, I'm very type A. I'm very, uh, a self-starter. I'm a motivator. Um, and so I struggle with pride. And when bobsled came on my plate, when you grow up in Texas and don't have any snow and you think NFL, you, you can't take any credit for, for bobsled <laughs> when that came. But this, this new journey, um, to become a United States Olympian, it allowed me to dream big again, set in motion this new dream. The days after opening ceremonies, uh, I, I get stuck in my bathroom. I'm, I'm taking a shower. You know, we're getting ready for an interview with the Today Show later that afternoon. And I get out of the shower and I, I can't get the door open, the bathroom door. And my roommate, he was still in the weight room. So nobody was in, you know, I didn't have a roommate to help me try to open the door. And so I start banging on the kind of side of the bathroom where my other two teammates were to see if they, they could hear me, like a, a distress call. And turns out, I find this out later, they thought it was construction. Uh, so they put their iPods in, thinking that uh, they're going to drown out some of the construction. But I I, um, I get stuck. I'm, I'm in there for about an hour. And in the Olympic Village, all the, the rooms, it's very similar to kind of like a college dorm where you have a, a long hallway. And so I, I get the bright idea, hey, I'm going to start banging on things in the bathroom that run parallel with the hallway to see if I can create some noise. And so I, I, I get back to the bathroom door. I break down this door. I, I get out of the bathroom and I take a picture of it. You know, I've got a pretty good sense of humor. And so I, I put it on social media. I'm thinking, you know, hey, maybe get a couple of funny comments, maybe some retweets. But oh my goodness, in 24 hours, it got 28,000 retweets seen by an estimated 10 million people around the world. It went crazy. You can find Johnny's full interview in episode 149 of The Action Catalyst. And now our guest from episode 169, Vince Posente, an in-demand speaker and expert on resiliency, explains how he used determination and innovation to rise to the ranks of an Olympic skier in just four short years, about two decades behind most of his competitors. One question I get asked frequently is, "This is how at 26 years old did you just decide to go to the Olympic Games? And the underlying question there is, how can I make a big decision in my own life? You know, this Hollywood notion that we just have this epiphany of clarity and we know exactly what we need to create, you know, is, is just that. It's a Hollywood notion. There's a, you know, I didn't decide at 26. It goes back to age, shoot, 14 when I was seeing the opening ceremonies of the Olympics on TV. And, and that's when the seed was planted but I played clarinet in the band. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't exactly Olympic material. And nonetheless, that seed was planted and things just show up in our lives. And I call those defining moments. And over time, these defining moments showed up where, uh, and, and then by the way, a defining moment is that moment of emotional intensity. And so at 14, that would have been the opening ceremonies. And we have these moments of emotional intensity throughout our life that kind of push us eventually in a direction where 
I watched my buddies who had raced in luge for a couple of years. And I watched these buddies of mine marching in the opening ceremonies. And I was in the stands with a ticket. And the first thing that kind of resonates with, with me for everybody that's listening is resiliency has a lot to do with how you make decisions. And we normally make big decisions when we're uncomfortable. It's, it's not this, this is what I want to create in my life. This is what I want to build. This is what, you know, it's more a notion, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of being in this situation and something has to change. And it was at those opening ceremonies in answer to that question at 26 you know, never again. I'm just never again going to have that feeling of regret, of not knowing, of, of engaging. So moments of emotional intensity, defining moments, are always followed up by a decision. And we're creatures of habit. <laughs> so that makes sense that we're creatures of decision-making habits. And most of those decisions are unconscious. So until we get conscious of the decision-making habits we have, and say, wait a minute, you know, at 14, I just walked away. I didn't pay attention to this Olympic thing. At 26, I, I realized I might just make that same decision again and again if I didn't engage. So the next question is, so you made a decision at 26 to go to the Olympic Games. How did you get there? <laughs> and you can make decisions all day long. Like, I want to go to the Olympic Games. I want to build a massive house. I want to buy the uh, a Lamborghini or w whatever your decision is. But unless you get the massive subconscious neurons working in your favor, you're never going to be able to get that. The first sequence here is clarity, where clarity means that you have an emotional connection to what that goal is. And just walking away or being afraid that it might not work out, in my case, it just doesn't work. And so that's, that is the beginning part of clarity. So you then have an emotional connection of where you want to go. And that's clarity. What I learned when I was ski racing is I, everybody tries to do what the competition's not doing. And at the exact same moment, the competition's trying to do what you're not doing. And I changed my mind of how I would compete is to do what the competition wasn't willing to do. And the distinction is this. My competition wasn't local or national. You'd think yeah, I wanted to race on the national team. I was competing against other Canadians. Well, no. The Olympic qualifying standards were top 16 in the world. So I knew my competition were the top 16. And then to say, what are the top 16 people, skiers in the world, not willing to do? Because I started at 26. They've been racing since they were five. They had a 20-year head start. But if I did what they're not willing to do, then you can supersede what the competition's doing. When I was racing, I interviewed a guy who had a PhD in politics and sport, right? I got more information out of that half-hour interview. And simply because the other athletes weren't willing to do that, they were, what they were doing was you know, doing more push-ups or grinding it out or getting on the ski slope or putting an extra two hours in the gym or whatever. But I, I, you know, when you do what the competition is not willing to do, you come up with competitive advantages that don't necessarily have to be huge things, just, you know, competing smarter. And a tool that I used while I was racing was I'm, I'm grateful for being the fastest speed skier in Canada, top 10 in the world. Because when you add gratitude to something, it's so much more effective. It's not an affirmation in such that it's more of a, a goal with an emotional buzz attached to it. And it's a trigger for taking your focus off what's not working and back onto that emotional experience. So when a thought is occupied with what's not going to work, or this is or a distraction or whatever, you go ask yourself, is this taking me closer to my emotional buzz or further away? 
And if it's further away, you you snap back on. And there's something called post-Olympic depression. And I have to say that uh, gold medalists have this just as much as anybody that didn't attain a medal, you know. And it, it's really when you drive towards something for so long, and in this case, for me, it was just four years. But I mean, I went through a real low part, just thinking it just didn't happen. It didn't work the way I wanted to. And that's part of my message when I speak to, to groups uh, is I don't tell the audiences that I didn't win the gold medal. So they're going, oh, my gosh, you're 10th in the world and you're in the gold medal round. And I say, hey, yeah, here's the video. And you hit a bump. <laughs> I hit a bump. I At 138 miles an hour, I hit a bump and I bobbled enough that it dropped me down to 15th place with no second chance. And the reconciliation is I had to give myself a break. I forgot first that the goal was to get to the Olympic Games. In the Olympics, uh, you know, the, that was the goal to march in the opening ceremonies. Yet a year before the Olympics, I was ranked 10th in the world. I went, well, I don't need to just go there. Why don't I win something? And then so that became the goal. So I guess we come right back to that being present and being in that mo moment of emotional intensity of of enjoying this moment and uh, and getting every bit of, of joy you can from this moment. That's how you have achievement. And that's when you hit a bump, you just go, yeah, shoot, I hit a bump. Oh, <laughs> and move on. Finally, a man who's no stranger to gold, Scott Hamilton, shares the bittersweet experience of winning his gold medal in figure skating. You can hear Scott's full interview in episodes 363 and 364 of The Action Catalyst. In 1984, when you captured the Olympic gold medal, that had to be just so incredible. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit of what that experience was like and the path that set you on the course to becoming an Olympic gold medal winner. I mean, I was sort of a habitual loser, you know, kind of early in my career. And when you're, when you're not winning as a boy in figure skating, that's really bad. <laughs> you know, it's like if you're meddling and you're a girl in figure skating, there's so many women in figure skating that you're probably really good. But if you're a boy in figure skating and you don't meddle, you probably should be thinking about doing something else, you know, because there's just <laughs> not as many guys. So I was kind of always at the bottom. And then my mom was diagnosed with cancer and she said, you have one year left. And I said, okay. So I went all in. Um, my coach had retired. I went in with a new coach and uh, he was sort of a uh, whip cracking taskmaster kind of guy. And, you know, I just sort of said, I'll submit, you know, so I went all in and I ended up from the best finish I ever had at a national championship, which was seven. I win the junior title. So that was a big you know, kind of big moment. And then um, I was given a sponsorship, which gave me a second life in skating because I won that title. And um, I, I went to a new coach and uh, that bared incredible fruit, but I still kind of went back to my losing ways. It was that first year after I won the junior title that I was, I went back to the bottom of the senior level. That was the last time my mom saw me skate. And so grieving, you know, kind of the most important person on the planet to me, the most one I love the most it, it sort of became fuel for the fire that I, I just really wanted to be the skater that she always dreamed I could be. I always wanted to be the person that she always dreamed I could be. And so I, I just, you know, put my head down and I got to work and I ended up uh, making onto the podium of the nationals the very next year. And then two years later, I'm on the Olympic team. And then there was one competition after that Olympic year in 1980, where I came in second. 
it's only one of two times I've ever, or three times I ever came in second in my skating life. I the first third or completely off the podium. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I, I went from October of 1980 until March of 1984. I, I never lost another competition and, and it was really remarkable. You know, I got lucky a few times, but, you know, heading into Sarajevo, you know, I, I kept running into members of the media and they would say things like, do you realize that you're the, your only real lock going into this Olympic games? Meaning like you're the only one that's guaranteed to win. And I go, well, I mean, it's skating and it's on ice and I do have knives strapped to my feet. So it's probably not hundred percent a lock. And they said, no, no, no. If you don't win the gold medal, that probably is a huge failure and embarrassment for our country. And I was like, since when, since when is that like, you know, the way to do this? <laughs> I just sort of hid from the media the whole time I was in Sarajevo. And um, I went in with a strategy that if I was top three in figures, top three in short, top three in long mathematically, there was no way I could lose the gold medal. And so I had to get strong where I was weak. I was weak in the compulsory figures historically. And I just put my head down and I had to fall in love with compulsory figures. I just had to get over my animosity and fall in love. And as I loved figures, they started to love me back. And um, on the way to Sarajevo, um, my coach uh, strategically wanted to stop in Paris for a few days of jet lag, you know, kind of getting over that. So when I showed up in Sarajevo, I was locked down 100%. And in Paris, there was um, a skater who was the best figures, compulsory figures skater in the world, and probably one of the best of all time. And Don wanted me to go there to train with him. And his coach um, was this character somebody that I get a big kick out of. And this figures a skater, this, his name was Jean-Christophe Simon. He was great in figures, but he struggled in the freestyle. And a lot of it was motivation, right? So his coach thought if I came, I could motivate him in freestyle, then that would be a great thing. And Don really wanted me to see his figures. So Don put my patch right next to his patch, my coach Don, and I started doing my figures and I just sort of snuck a peek at the patch next to mine over to Jean-Christophe's patch. And I was like, I can beat him. I can totally beat him. And it was just this, like, I don't know. It was, it was an amazing kind of this epiphany. It's like, man, work really does change things. It's like, I never could have beat this guy. So when I went to Sarajevo, I beat him five judges to four. There's nine judges on a panel. I beat him five judges to four in the first figure. I beat him seven judges to two on the second figure. And then on the third figure, I beat him nine judges to zero. And, and it was there that I knew that it was going to be really hard for me to not win the Olympic gold medal. So I, I got through the short program. That was the whole story. And then I went to the long and I was, by then the right side of my head was completely congested. I'd, I'd gotten a cold while I was there and, and I was pretty congested. I couldn't take any, any histamines or anything else because doping right you know you don't want to lose the medal over you know any histamine or something like that so i didn't skate my best on the night and you know i feel badly about that but i feel good about the fact that i hadn't really lost a run through my long program in like almost three months so i was really trained and if i hadn't have been that trained the the long program could have been would have been should have been a lot worse so you know, I needed to be fifth in the long program in order to lose the gold medal. And the math had to be just perfect, right? So I ended up being second in the long program. And as I'm standing on the podium, accepting an Olympic gold medal, about to see my flag, our flag raise and hear our anthem, I was like, 
this is not a personal achievement. This is this is a moment shared with my country, um, a product of the United States. Um, everything that is in me is a product of the United States. So this isn't my moment. This is our moment. But all the other things just sort of crept in. And you know, it's funny. Uh, a friend of mine asked me, I want to know exactly what it's like to stand on that podium and accept an Olympic gold medal. And I go, it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> because it's relief that I got through the gauntlet and I made it successfully to the end of the gauntlet, right? It's that feeling of triumph. Like I dreamed of this moment for the last four years and now it's actually happening. I never thought to dream it before that, like ever, because I just thought it was something that could never happen to somebody like me. And then I thought everything I've ever known since I was nine years old was leading up to this moment. Like, who am I now? And I wish, I wish my mom were here to see this uh, really, you know, cause she was the fuel that made it happen. And, and where am, what am I going to do now? And, and it's like, you know, I was just at a loss, you know, I was, I was happy. I was sad. I was, I was like, so in the moment and I was so, you know, kind of like lost in what's next. And, and I go back after the awards ceremony, D Doug Wilson, who is a legendary television director from ABC all the way back to the wild world of sports days. He said, well, my friend, your life will never be the same. And I just thought, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and I, I got back to Denver and um, there was a parade in downtown Denver for me where 5,000 people packed Larimer Square and I was like, what just, what happened here? And then there was all this bus and everything. And then um, I went to the world championships about three and a half weeks later and won there. And then it was time for me to step into life because I was 25 years old. I was living in one of my, at my best friend's parents' basement. <laughs> and it was like, it's time to put my, you know, grown up adult big boy pants on and go out and make a living. And so I, I turned professional and, and I just, you know, worked really hard and I was able to find a business model that allowed me to create more opportunity out of the last one um, to where I was able to skate for as a professional for 20 years. Thanks for joining us for this special Olympic edition of the Action Catalyst. Be sure to head to theactioncatalyst.com to subscribe and listen to more episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.